Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are listening from. Um, Hello, hello, and uh, uh, welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope that uh, you have gotten to halfway through this year intact in one piece and ready for the next half. Time is moving. Always, I, I always make these comments about time and the strangeness of the sequence of time and the movement of time. But yeah, time moves at this really interesting pace and sometimes it can feel like you're behind or you haven't done enough it's six months in it's you know and then people are like you have to move it's the last six months of the year then it's 2024 and I get that I get that um, we do need to move and 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 make the impacts that we we need to make on this on this planet in this lifetime but if you're not there I commend you just for getting this far you know I don't think we give people enough commendation for just getting this far So with that in mind, um, I'm just going to dive into today's episode, which has a link to this conversation about time and time sequencing. Uh, So last week, uh, minding my own business on Twitter, I discovered it was my 14th year anniversary on the platform. Now, I know I've been there for a while, but I think when you see a number like 14 years, it's very confronting because it's just a lot of time, you know, many years on this platform, but then also doesn't feel like it's 14 years. And so as I uh, reflected on what it uh, meant for me to have been on Twitter for 14 years, I started to realize that um, there were so many pivotal moments in the Zimbabwean uh, Twitter environment that have created the Twitter community that Zimbabwe currently has. Now, um, Zimbabwe is not a very big country, and um, so the numbers of people on Twitter would never be huge, massive numbers. But we've seen uh, in the time Uh, Since the beginning of Twitter, all those years ago, Zimbabweans used the social media space and that the social media platform um, to have movements and moments like this flag, as well as Zimbabwean Lives Matter, which were politically oriented uh, movements um, where young people particularly took to Twitter and uh, to 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 amplify voices um, and uh, sentiments around um, the political situation in the country. And so to have those moments, you kind of have to go backwards and see how it all began uh, and who was there and what was happening at that time. And so I, like I said, June 2009, this is June 2009, I'll take you back uh, 14 years now. I'm at a media conference and a professor is talking about Twitter. And I I recently actually came across this notebook, which had the question that I asked, what is a Twitter? Now, I don't think that that's from 2009. I think it's a much earlier time when I'd attended another media conference where Twitter was discussed. Because by 2008, most 
or a lot of people knew what Twitter was by virtue of the uh, President Barack Obama campaign, Yes We Can, which used a lot of social media that was, you know, millennials at that time in their early 20s and teens who organized each other to, to, to mobilize for this first black president of the United States um, through social media and other digital platforms. And this is really where Twitter starts to grow its wings. Pun not intended, but I'll take it. Um, it grows its wings and it becomes this platform that people start to see has a very important uh, use for political mobilization and organizing. And so, you know, you start to see more and more movements come about and things happening. You know, late, in later years, you have things like the Arab Spring that's happening in North Africa that's using a lot of Facebook, but then also Twitter and other platforms and spaces. Uh, and other things happen, you know, over the years, uh, the Occupy movement, um, all kinds of things start to happen on Twitter. But then I just want to go back and look at um, what was happening in June 2009 in Zimbabwean Twitter. I joined this platform. A professor was, you know, talking about how important it was to do so. And it didn't really make sense at that time because I didn't know many people on Twitter. Everyone was on Facebook at that time. Nonetheless, I joined it. It's a ghost town. I think I knew two people on there. And um, they, you know, there was a time you'd get, <laughs> you'd get dragged if you had, if you didn't have a profile picture on your Twitter, it was like a big thing those days. Um, and you'd have an egg instead as a profile picture. So, you know, a lot of people had eggs. And it was just like, you would know who that person was because their Twitter handle was like their whole name. <laughs> so I think my first Twitter handle was Fungai Machirori. And, um, and then these other people, full name kind of thing. You know, it's like your first email address where you have, um, you know, these unnecessarily complicated details <laughs> in your email address. Um, and so that was what Twitter was like. I really didn't know what to do there. It was just like, okay, we are here. You tweet every now and again, and there's three people you know. And so it was really hard at that time to engage or to know how to engage. But over time, you started to see little things happening, little pockets of community. And I think the first community that I perceived that I really got in, involved in was Comedy Thursday. Now, I think Comedy Thursday has a bigger history and context, particularly in America as, you know, a comedy club of sorts, something, you know, that um, happens on Thursday evenings. But we started to see some local comedians start to use the Comedy Thursday hashtag as a way for people to meet on Thursday evenings to laugh and have a good time on Twitter. And so I, I, I remember that um, you'd have a kind of theme or a focus. So it would be like this week on Comedy Thursday, the theme is, you know, what you would never say to your best friend's husband uh, or something like that. And so people would just come on and there were these, these bigger voices. Uh, I remember Danny, that guy was one of them. This other comedian, Carl Joshua Ngube, was another one. And they would kind of start the conversation. I mean, they were comedians. They were hilarious. And so it was absolutely hilarious. They'd come up with the funniest, um, funniest content. I, I'd just be laughing most of the time. And then, you know, us as kind of participants, audience participation, we'd come in, we'd chime in with our own little things as well. It was just such a good time. 
Yeah, it was good time. It was light. It was easy. And at that time, you know, you kind of came on on that day, and then that was it. Like you know, in the in the rest of the week, you just sort of talk to your two friends, your your Twitter followers, or you know whatever you did. You followed maybe um, international platforms or celebrities, and then. Um, you know, another another key person at that time, and this is, you know, around 2012, 2011, 2012, so this is a few years later, um, uh, was uh, Rutendo Mutsamwira. And she was uh, based in South Africa, a student at the time, and I think getting a, a lot of the intel as well about how this platform worked from, you know, the South African space, which is a much bigger space. But she, you know, live tweeted so much stuff, so many things that at that time it was like, no one live tweets. What is this? You know, she'd be at events and she'd be tweeting about what was happening at these events. And that became something that I think became a model for people who didn't really know how else to use Twitter, except with their two friends, to start to engage. No, it can't have been 2012. I take, I mean, I said it was 2012 that Comedy Thursday started. It, it might have been a little earlier, but around that year range. Anyway, so here's uh, Rutendo, and she's using this, this, this platform in this very interesting way. And then there becomes something called Twimbos. Now, I don't know where the name Twimbos originates from, but Twimbos is, you know, Zimbabweans are Zimbos, and so Twimbos are tw Zimbabweans on Twitter, Twimbos. And so we have this little hashtag where you can index content by Twimbos. So if you're on Twitter now, you can sort of find any content that relates to Twimbos by filtering it out with the hashtag. So it's, you know, becoming more and more communal, coming a little, becoming a little more formal, a little more organized, you know, a little more put together. And um, after that, uh, you start to have these meetups. Now people start meeting. There's enough people on this platform at this time who are interested to, to, to get to know each other. And it's still a very niche group of people. It's people who are, uh, I can say at that time, a lot of the people that I interacted with were people who had been abroad and come back to Zimbabwe or people who... Um, just were engaged in some sort of digital media um, space. They were in, they were curious, so they were obviously the the early adopters. Uh, and so it was it was a kind of group of people who had a specific focus or profile. They were technologists, or they'd just come back from overseas, and they were already using Twitter and other platforms in these ways. And so these hangouts started to happen, uh, physical meetings every now and again, and you know, people were able to put faces to names and, and, the, and the like. And so it, it really started to become more and more of a community. Now, um, at, at around this time as well, and I'd say it's 20, 2012, um, we have this big, uh, <laughs> the, the, I think the real first influencer of that time, I mean, there were influencers before, but they didn't have the numbers. You know, like I said, Carl Joshua Ngobe was one of those. And he had, he had decent Twitter follower numbers, if I remember correctly. But then we had this guy called Sir Nige, who just came and literally told, told, told us, not told us, but showed us that we were slacking 
on this platform. Absolutely slacking. Here he comes. I think he'd um, lived in Scotland recently, returned to Zimbabwe, had like 80,000 followers at that time. And that was, you know, that was obscene. No one had 80,000 followers at that time. I think if you were doing it good, you, you had like 20, you had maybe 15. He, he just came and he had these followers. And we were just like, who are you, sir? Who are you? And, you know, we, you know, engage with this person who has such a big following. It just means that, you know, you get more um, traction for your own content because if he retweets you, he puts you in touch with other people that you may not have engaged with and so forth. Anyway, so Nige eventually starts this um, uh, Tuesday evening conversation. Now, you know, we'd had this comedy Thursday and it was kind of on the wane at this point, you know, not really focused on anything besides humor. And then it kind of broke, you know, breaks up for the rest of the week. But here comes Sir Nige, and he says, we need to have conversations, like real conversations about real issues. And so Tuesday evenings, you block out your time. Uh, we are all on Twitter, those who are on Twitter at that time. And we have a, a thematic focus for that week's discussion, even guests. And we just sit and have a conversation. So conversation could be... Um, homophobia in Africa, it could be the state of uh, water, the water situation in Zimbabwe, um, politics and elections and all kinds of things. And, you know, he got so many people to camp out on a Tuesday, a weekday evening and have this conversation for two to three hours. And that was completely a game changer at that time. That did not happen. What 260 Chat was able to do was to bring people um, with very different opinions about issues together because the moderator took a neutral stance. He did not try to engage or bring a viewpoint. And so it was, it was a safe environment for people to come in and engage with. But at the same time, social media and Twitter at that time are not big enough. They're not, you know, they're not under as much scrutiny and surveillance as I'd say they are now. So people felt freer to say what they thought because most people were still on Facebook anyway. And so this was a little, you know, in-between space that felt like it had a kind of emancipatory vibe about it. Now, 260 Chat also then eventually grew into having physical interactions. People would meet and have these same conversations. And then the live tweeting uh, focus started to come in. So other people would be live tweeting at the events that Sir Nige would hold and with the panelists and, and, and that sort of thing. So it became a, more, a bit more organized and formalized. But, it, you know, it's just... The, the evolution of that time from, you know, completely being online to having this shift to being able to have an offline conversation, but then bringing in the online component through the live tweeting. So that was really um, an amazing time for people who were on the platform to, to engage. Now, at some point, and this is the big shift that happens, this is still fairly, again, exclusive, even exclusionary, you might say, because Twitter at that time, you didn't get um, extra data uh, or free data, you know, like, you know, most uh, 
companies would offer, telecoms companies would offer you, you know, a kind of enticement to be on social media or a new social media platform by having free bundles that allowed you to just um, get onto this platform without having to actually pay for it or pay an extra cost. Now, this wasn't happening at that time with Twitter. Twitter was not free in that way. You had to pay your way in. Um, it was extra cost. It was your data. It was, you know, it was nothing from a package or a bundle. And so uh, Econet, the biggest telecoms company in Zimbabwe, then realized, I think, you know, the strategic heads realized that they were really missing out on a, uh, a very fertile market for um, for themselves. And so this is not at that time, I'd say it was a few years later, 2013 or 2014, you start to have free Twitter promotions run by Econet. And what free Twitter did was it said, you know, you can join Twitter and, you know, it's free. It's not going to eat your, your data. Um, have a look, have a see what goes on on this platform. And so it was initially meant to be a shorter time period, I remember. But then I think they saw the success of it and so many people joining it, joining Twitter, that is, that they kept this promotion running for, I believe it was months. It was a long time. And I think that singularly shifted, firstly, the demographic of the Twitter user, and secondly, the knowledge of Twitter across more people. Now, I, when I say the demographic of, of Twitter, I mean that, as I've said already, at the beginning of Twitter, it was a very elitist platform. It was only accessible to people who had the luxury of having extra data and who knew about it, who'd you know, maybe been abroad or who were studying technology, etc. cetera. Um, and what free Twitter then enabled uh, was that people who might not have joined Twitter at all now could try it out, now could see how it worked and, and you know, what, what happens on this, in, on this space. And so it was almost this kind of bridging of a digital divide, even though, I mean, obviously to still be on, on Twitter, you needed to have a mobile phone and you, had, you needed to have, a, 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 you know, a smartphone uh, or at least, I don't know about a feature phone, but a, yeah, definitely a smartphone. And, um, but what happens is, as, as happens when you have more and more people on a platform and there's less knowledge of each other. So, you know, you had this more communal outlook in, in prior times with 263 Chat, with Twimbles. You kind of all knew each other. Um, and now you go into an era where it's getting bigger and bigger, the, the, the community is getting bigger and bigger. And then you start having more and more um, anonymity and you don't know everyone in this village anymore. And so what starts happening, you start getting trolls, you start getting, um, you know, people who just disrupt conversations, who are just, um, just hateful, you know, in, in many ways. And so you notice that things start to change. It is not the same place it used to be. It's not this quiet little village. It is a town hall full of lots of different people's opinions and perspectives and things. And as it grows more and more, it becomes more and more political because for some reason, in, well, not for some reason, I think I, I know why, because the situation in the environment in Zimbabwe is so challenging. And um, the way that we have often been told is the way to change that situation is through politics. 
So a lot of people are engaged and invested in knowing what's happening politically. So newspapers at the time also start milking that quite quite a lot. They do a lot of content that's political. Uh, people are just coming on to talk about politics. And you know the, the, the conversation becomes a little more serious in that way. There's still you know pockets of humor and other things happening, but not in the same ways. People are largely talking about politics and there's a lot of polarization in the politics. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of resentment. There's all that stuff that people start to bring to the Twitter space. Bearing in mind as well, like I said, uh, with free Twitter, people who come on to this, this platform at that time are also people who tend to be of a different social demographic. And so they uh, may have concerns about issues that are not usually talked about on this in this Twitter space by these elites, quote unquote, who have, you know, access to their data and have time for conversations um, and, you know, a little bit of humor every Thursday evening. And so you start to just see different things happening in the space. And I think these things are a microcosm of what's been happening anyway in the Zimbabwean environment, in the Zimbabwean context. There are people who have access to a lot and there are people who have access to nothing. And when these two people converge there, it tends to not be any overlap. There tends to be um, frustration even sometimes pointed at these people who are not essentially the problem, but then they become symbols or markers of the, the situation. And so lots of attacks happening, lots of differences of, in opinion, and lots of frustration, um, and a lot of politicization at the same time. And, you know, a perfect storm for movements that then come on a few years later, like uh, this flag, particularly, which was, you know, interestingly able to bring especially the middle class on board uh, with discussing issues of the nation, which sometimes were not affecting them in similar ways. But then, you know, everyone is affected by the Zimbabwean situation. Uh, but then I think his ability then to sort of get people across the divisions uh, of, of class and, um, you know, all these different divisions that, that happen in society to, to come on board with this cause was something that... I believed free Twitter made possible because if if he had tried to do this flag or a similar campaign pre-free Twitter, it would have just been this very small cohort of people who, one, didn't have numbers anyway to make um, the message go as viral as it did, and two, who may not have felt suitably um, affected by the situation to say something or to join the cause. Also, if you look at the timeline of when this flag happens, it's 2016. If you had gone pre-free Twitter, that would have been around 2013. And, you know, that was a time period when Zimbabwe had just been in a government of national unity and things were sort of okay at that time. So people were a little bit more comfortable. Then things just started to escalate again um, at a certain point in time. And, you know, um, people really felt agitated again. Now, what this is all to say, and this is not the end of the timeline. I mean, a lot of things have happened since and after. Um, but it is to say, I think it's so important to, to document the histories of our social media presences, our social media existences uh, from an individual and collective standpoint, because uh, this is essentially how 
you make sense of what the environment is 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 mirroring back to us. Um, and I think, as I always say, technology is a mirror uh, for society. I do not believe it's a value-free. Um, I mean, it, to a certain extent, it is it is value-free in that we give it the meanings that uh, we use it for. It is not a value-free product. It comes with the values that you know the the producers of it make of it in in whatever contexts they use it. However, um, it is a mirror. It is a way of looking at our societies and having a lens and a standpoint to say this is what was happening in our community, in our context, at this time. Now, if you say just going back to the beginning. Um, from, from those few years where it was a very small niche group, it is saying something about who had access. Who had access to the knowledge? Who had access to the data? It was these, it was these elite people, you know, had traveled, moved abroad, or come from abroad. I was abroad, actually, when I joined Twitter. So I learned of it from the space I was in, which was an international space, and you know who was using it and why and what they were talking about at that time and what had to happen to sort of quote unquote democratize it, give it um, uh, access or interest or engagement beyond just this niche group of people. And that had to be a big uh, telecommunications company being able to absorb the costs that are involved with data to bring people on board and then those people to now engage with these people they might not engage with otherwise because of the social divide and to get into these really um, uh, sort of controversial sometimes or stressful really conversations and and you know then people to realize that we don't live in this eco chamber we're not in our little bubble there's other Zimbabweans and other Zimbabweans have different ways of looking at things. And so that shook and shakes things up. Now, eventually, obviously, free, twi free Twitter um, stopped and it became something that people had to pay for. But then the, tw the Twitter data bundles were reasonable. And at that time, people had enough reason to want to be on Twitter. And so, you know, you, you see all these things and how important they are in, in how to bring more people into conversations. And it might be something to just think about in general when we think about political organizing and we think about the fact that we don't have certain voices in our spaces. Uh, we, we, we need to think about how to subsidize the costs of users who might, not, who might not ordinarily use the spaces or come to the environments or contexts that we are doing our organizing in. Um, and so whatever that looks like in your world, whether it's digital or physical or anything else, how do you bring on board the voices that you want to have represented uh, by making sure you understand their needs, by making sure you understand their contexts and giving them a means to participate that does not then create the further othering that may already exist. Anyway, those are my little thoughts. It was just meant to be a timeline, you know. I was just meant to tell you a little bit about the timeline, but then I got into my uh, thinking head, and I thought, hmm, this is interesting now. Like, what could we say about moments like free Twitter? How do you um, radicalize that beyond a capitalist motive? Because obviously the reason why Econet would have offered something like that was because they were trying to get new customers on board so that eventually people would pay for Twitter bundles. However, you know, if you're from a more emancipatory politics, a more radical politics, how do you use even those models of capitalism and power for your organizing to ensure that no voices are 
uh, sidelined. I mean, voices are still sidelined. We're still living in a digital divide. There are people who don't have mobile phones. Um, and WhatsApp is still the lingua franca of you know, social media in Zimbabwe. Uh, but nonetheless, more people are on board than they were 10 years ago. And that's, that's something to be said. There's something to be said for that. And um, because of that and because of them, political organizing became possible. And other forms of organizing became possible. I'll leave you there. And I hope this was good and interesting to hear. I would love your feedback as usual. If you have anything you'd like to comment or share, please do send an email to info at digitallynativepodcast.com. Alternatively, you can just have a look at our website, which is www.digitallynativepodcast.com. Um, throw a little comment or a like or anything uh, on our Facebook page, the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungaya Machirori. The same is the LinkedIn page, the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungaya Machirori. And you can also tweet or retweet us at Native Podcast um, on Twitter. I hope you have a great end of this week and uh, I'll see you in July. Take care until then.